Students Talk Security. My name is Monica Montgomery, and I'm a junior here at Notre Dame, double majoring in political science and peace studies, and a fellow in the Undergraduate International Security Studies Certificate Program. Today, we are fortunate enough to be joined by Professor George Lopez. George A. Lopez is a professor emeritus at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies here at Notre Dame. He is a leading expert on economic sanctions, peace building, and various peace-related issues. During 30 years of affiliation with the Kroc Institute, Lopez has engaged in a diverse set of policy and public roles. He has served as the Vice President of the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C., and on the United Nations Panel of Experts for Monitoring and implement Implementing U.N. Sanctions on North Korea. He has also served as Interim Executive Director of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, chaired its Board of Directors, and presided over the moving of hands of the Doomsday Clock in 2002. He has written more than 40 articles and book chapters and authored or edited six books. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Lopez. Delighted to be with you, Monica. Thanks. So today we're going to talk about an experience that Professor Lopez and I have just gone through and its implications. On November 10th and 11th, the Holy See's Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development hosted an international conference titled Perspectives for a World Free of Nuclear Weapons and for Integral Disarmament. The conference brought together Nobel Peace Prize laureates, international state and religious leaders, civil society experts, academics, and students. Professor Lopez and I were two of the participants at this con conference, along with 15 other Notre Dame undergraduate and graduate students, young alums, and faculty. Pope Francis addressed the conference participants and declared that the possession of nuclear weapons is immoral, senseless, and unethical. In this podcast, we'll discuss the implications of this statement, as well as the current nuclear risks, the nuclear ban treaty, strategy of deterrence, and how a world free from nuclear weapons would come to be in our modern era. So to start us off, let's talk about Pope Francis's statement. It's a pretty significant step in the Holy See's doctrine from a long um, policy towards the condemnation of the use of nuclear weapons, but an acceptance of deterrence. But now this is a full de denunciation of the possession of nuclear weapons. What do you think this means for Catholics around the world, Professor Lopez, including institutions like our own and individuals in the government and the military? Well, thanks, Monica. I think that is the place to start. Um, my own view, and I think those shared by uh, many at the conference, was that to look at this statement in the context of what Francis has brought to his larger moral vision for the world. And so, for example, in Laudato Si, he went further than any other pontiff on the issue that we have a deep and direct responsibility in our various institutional lives for the care and maintenance of the future of the planet and that current trends did not show that we were exercising good stewardship in that regard. Thus, he cast to us a challenge about caring for that earth, and he linked it in, in an integral development way to the dynamic of what causes poverty, the challenges for maldevelopment that were built therein. And I think we need to look at this nuclear statement as very consistent with that. If you really care for the planet, the notion of being dedicated by the billions of dollars to create new and devastating ways to blow it up and generate all the destruction that that would entail is dramatically inconsistent. So I think while some would, would look at this statement in isolation, uh, on the negative side, let's say, who's the pope to say anything about strategic policy? Or on the, on the sympathetic side, gee, as a Catholic, what am, I, 
what am I supposed to think now? The Pope says no more nuclear weapons. Um, I think this is consistent with where this Pope has gone in integral human development. And in that light, there's much to be seen that's positive, even for states that are holding nuclear weapons. He's trying to give leaders at the first level, those who head nation states, uh, an attempt to check themselves as we move seemingly headlong into more and more expenditures for more and more destructive weapons. Uh, the North Korea-U.S. crisis has heightened this in its own way. It's piqued the interest. But what he's trying to do is to build from what will be the 55th anniversary of Terrace in April, the 35th anniversary of the U.S. Catholic Bishops' Challenge of Peace letter uh, in May of next year, and say, look, we all have a responsibility at the first level decision makers, at the second level as Catholic citizens of our society, and at the third level as, as people who inhabit the earth and want it to have a future, that how should we continue to possess that which should not be used? And even in thinking about the link of those huge expenditures on weapons to poverty, why would you continue to build and possess that which you should never use? So for those who, who look to the Holy See for a good moral compass and challenge, we have one now in ways that are very, very interesting. And uh, let the political, social, economic, moral, military debate begin. Absolutely. Thank you very much. So um, Mohammed El-Baradi, the Director General Emeritus of the International Atomic Energy Agency and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, was at the conference with us. Um, at the conference, he said that he believes the risk of nuclear weapons, the use of nuclear weapons, is higher today than at any other time in recent history. Professor Lopez, from your experience monitoring the sanctions and the situation in North Korea, what do you make of El Barati's statement, and what are the other major risks of nuclear detonation or conflict in the world today? Yeah, I, I, I will just preface my remarks that by having had the unique privilege of working with him and his agency on some of this, um, there's no deeper commitment to peace than by this gentleman and the courage it's taken for him to really stand up to member states who want to challenge the independence of his organization, etc. And I think he created a significant uh, period of history in his leadership. I, I'm, I, I hate to say that I'm in agree with him, partly because um, not just of his statement, but in the network in which I have some privilege to operate with regard to North Korea, uh, we've done a kind of internal survey of about 25 of us of people's uh, fill out on the piece of paper what you think the risks of nuclear war are with between the United States and, and, and North Korea. And, and the results were pretty scary from my point of view. Many of the people in that group uh, thought it was 50-50. The people who move quickly in and out of South Korea in their dealings back and forth to Japan. We're talking 60-40, 70-30. Only two of our number were under 50-50, thinking we're not close. Uh, what fuels that? Well, you know, standard international security and international peace research tell us there's really three things that historically have led to, to big power war. And when you're talking about two nuclear states, even one huge like us and one smaller like North Korea, I think the same three factors hold. The first is capability the second is intention, and the third is the kind of fear uncertainty index. When those three are moving in a direction of higher capability, higher intention to use aggressive force, 
and higher degrees of fear and uncertainty, the prospects of war go, go straight up the ladder. Uh, do we have that in this situation? Well, on the first capability, the United States has stayed pretty stable, but it's the rise in capability of North Korea that's become an issue that's fueled the cycle of both rhetoric and, and the possibilities of war. Intention, both sides have locked themselves into a pattern of stubbornness, escalation, provocational acts, and intend to say, no, you won't do this or I will do that. So not a good second sign. The third is fear and uncertainty, which is fueled by the rhetoric and fueled by the absence of lots of direct dialogue between the two sides. So when I arrived at my 60-40 assessment, for example, or would arrive at saying, yeah, I'm afraid uh, Mr. Albarade may be right, the risk is higher than ever before, I think we can't quickly stop the capability cycle. We can only barely touch the intentions of sides without dialogue. The thing that we're most able to control at the national level is the fear and uncertainty that the other party feels. And I think that it's particularly incumbent upon this administration to decide a level of dialogue, even if they're not talking directly with the North Koreans, what kind of signals you want to give them that war is never going to be the answer to the nuclear standoff we face with one another, and that we have to figure out a way to do this short of war, as opposed to make one more move and we'll unleash fire and fury. Because the other side's level of fear and uncertainty, we don't know what the ceiling of that is and where they'll determine that they're only hours or days away from an attack, so they might as well launch now. We control not only our own uncertainty and fear, but we also control theirs even more so. And that's where I think we need to go to affect the likelihood of, of war here. Thank you very much. Uh, so moving on, the United States is set to spend over around $1.5 trillion over the next 30 de three decades updating its nuclear arsenal. Russia and China are also pursuing their own nuclear modernization programs. Many of our conference speakers said these current efforts to modernize nuclear weapons show a commitment to the existence of nuclear weapons for the foreseeable future, while other argues that these steps are just taken to create safer nuclear weapons. What's your take on this? Do these actions violate the Treaty on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons? Well, I, I think even without the experience of listening to Pope Francis in this document he produced last week or, or uh, other associated statements from moral leaders and, and disarmament experts, I begin with the notion that $1.5 trillion spent is grotesque, even if spread over uh, a longer period of time. The, the way that Pope Francis wants us to focus is to ask the question first are those expenditures fungible? You know, what happens with that money if it's not spent there? What happens with your defense structure if it's not there? And the answers he would encourage us to explore is, yes, it's fungible, and societal needs and different ways to increase the quality of life, which might lead to better relationships among states, which might lead to a security system less dependent on nuclear weapons, is what we need to explore at least as equal as those who think we ought to move headlong into this kind of modernization and expenditure. Uh, at the second level, with regard to the uh, non-proliferation treaty, I, there's no question it's a significant violation 
of the spirit and direction and pledges made um, by those states when they entered this. The 2000 and 2010 review called for limits on the expansion and protection program of existent silo uh, of existent stockpiles and the retiring of stockpiles has been very slow a pace particularly for the US and Russia and by next year we're supposed to reach threshold values that it doesn't look like we're going to 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 really reach the distinct programs that are being developed particularly bomber systems and the like are much more than enhancement and uh, upgrades. They are qualitatively different for many of us. That would be a whole different program for us to explore that. And, uh, you know, in an era where uh, the President of the United States has declared for a verified agreement called the Iran deal, um, that the other side is living up to every technical aspect of that, but he thinks it's important to renege on it because they violate the spirit when we talk about where this country and others may go with the NPT, we're violating direct Article 6 dynamics that were pledged 20 years ago. And we continue to do so. I think the Pope warns us at our peril because it not only increases the risk that others who sign the treaty decide it's meaningless, but the both practical military and moral leadership opportunity that the U.S. has there is being mortgaged in terms of leadership in the treaty. So at the conference, Cardinal Peter Turkson, um, our captain, as we so fondly called him, and the head of the Holy See's Dicastery, which was hosting the conference, opened the symposium by stating international peace cannot be based on nuclear deterrence, balance of power, and other false senses of security. We, sa we saw a similar statement in Pope Francis's um, declaration. However, the strongest argument in favor of the existence of nuclear weapons is that of the strategy of nuclear deterrence, pointing to the Cold War, for example, of a, um, of a situation of peace through nuclear weapons. What do you make of these viewpoints and think of the argument in favor or against a sustainability of international peace based on nuclear deterrence? And it might help just um, to start out by discussing what exactly is a strategy of nuclear deterrence. Yeah, thanks. No, that's that's exactly correct because I think re-examining not only the definition and logic of deterrence, but maybe testing more its historical accuracy is partly what all of this calls for. Deterrence uh, generally was uh, developed by U.S. strategic thinkers in the late 40s, early 50s, and then uh, really grafted on to the nuclear uh, dilemma so people could wrap their head around this level of destruction and the competition in the creation of these huge forces that was generated in the 50s by the, by the two power camps. Um, essentially, the logic of deterrence suggests that, to go back to some of the concerns I issued before, you will not intend to attack us, even if you have strong capability, if we have matching capability. So the way I prevent an attack from you and can continue to advance my own interests within reason is to have a visible, clear uh, kind of level of force that is mutually threatening to you as yours is to me. As the nuclear era wore on, we developed new adjectives and other phrases associated. So deterrence uh, also took on the term what was enhanced deterrence, or a strategy of deterrence demanded the ability in which your existing forces could withstand the first strike as the other, 
and then strike back, even if you were obliterated. Um, it led to the notion that there would be mutually assured destruction. But by and large, as the Cold War came to an end in the early 90s, many people, not all, but many people, particularly the United States and Britain, clung to the notion that the reason the two superpowers did not go to war with one another was because of these muscle-bound nuclear forces that were so um, likely to inspire fear in the other side that they simply wouldn't risk attack. Competing theories exist a great deal. Look at how the United States and the Soviet Union fought proxy wars in 17 different areas in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. So it wasn't like we weren't at war, we were at a different kind of war and hardly deterred from that at all, including massive bombings in some areas like in the Vietnam War by our surrogates or, or our own side. Uh, secondly, uh, good political science PhD students would ask, um, so is there more than one case? Is there a way to test the negative that maybe, as some European analysts would say, new documents from archives from both sides reveal things like at the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, when many people say deterrence worked, what actually worked on the side of the Soviets is, what is this guy, JFK crazy? Doesn't he understand you can't throw your weight around like this because we're both nuclear muscle-bound? We don't want to go to war, so let's accommodate certain things. Whereas it was for a long while used as a classic example that deterrence worked. In fact, it wasn't deterrence that the Soviets relied on. If you excuse the kind of uh, simplistic or or personal uh, statement here, um, I've often, when I've talked strategy with people, said, here's the dilemma with the inability to test deterrence. In, in my first week of going to grad school, um, my mom came to visit me in my new settling-in apartment. And I came home one day, and she said, I hope you don't mind, I played around with some things in the kitchen. And, you know, a little fear and trepidation, I said, what do we do? And she opened the cabinets, and all the foodstuffs, from the cereal to the boxes of raisins to various things, were all in perfectly sealed plastic bags. And I said, oh, that's nice. Why do we do that? And she said, well, I do that so the ants don't get it. And I said, mom, I don't have ants. And she said, see how good it works. For me, that's always been the logic of deterrence. If we're muscle-bound, equally staring each other down the barrel of this big nuclear gun, and we don't go to war, that's because we've stared each other down the barrel of the gun. See how good it works. But it's impossible if you actually didn't have intention to do this and you knew that there were other ways to work out your relationships. So I, I, I think one of the issues at stake here that Francis has posed to us, even if you think deterrence established a certain kind of peace from 1945 to 1990, in the world of the mid-2000-teens, where do we go when it's not two muscle-bound nuclear powers, when the danger of proliferation attaches itself not only to dictatorial regimes but the potential of various extremists, when the needs of the planet for sustainability could never afford even a low-yield nuclear war because of the costs to resources, people, atmospherics, and the like. We simply are charged now with going beyond where the Cold War was and inventing a new security system that's less dependent on nuclear arms than the past ones have been. And that ought to be within our reach. You know, we, we, we have uh, seen phases in human history where value issues have come up 
where somebody would suggest, yes, but economically we'll collapse if we do that. Uh, it's impossible to assume us not having this. In the arms area, it, it, you know, we can't prohibit chemical or biological weapons because the other side will always get them. Well, we did. In the economic era, it was slavery may be terrible, but, but, but the economy can't work without it. So we can't do away with slavery, or we've got to control it within limits. But, but you know, it's not a moral argument, it's an economic one. Um, I mean, certainly we can't give women the right to vote. Uh, you know, go on and choose your issue. There have been times where unless we began with a moral condemnation as the fulcrum point to drive us to a new set of public policies, we've not been engaged in the inventive and creative enterprise and, and, and in some cases, the highly conflictual enterprise for how to get through it. That's the era in which I think we face right now, that we've got to chart a new course of building national, regional, and global security in which we realize there's more insecurity associated with nuclear weapons and an expansion, enhancement of those than there is with uh, trying to create and invent the new one. And there are a number, as we'll probably get to, uh, creative steps in which you can both denuclearize in the spirit of a Francis, not yet get to zero, but begin to create that system as we go along. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Professor Lopez. So this conference came following the passage of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and the UN General Assembly this summer. With 122 votes in favor, one abstention, and only one contrary vote, the UN rejected the use of nuclear weapons and affirmed that they are totally unacceptable. However, what is missing from this treaty is each nuclear state and NATO country member, with the exception of the Netherlands. We, at the conference, we heard from Rose Gottmuller, the Deputy Secretary General of NATO. Ms. Gottmuller said that while NATO supports the NPT and hopes for a world free of nuclear weapons, the new nuclear ban treaties does not allow for, the progress, nor, for progress nor appreciate the work that has already been done, citing the fact that U.S. and Russia have reduced reliance on nuclear weapons, for example. Proponents of the nuclear bid replied saying that it is not meant to be the end of the disarmament process. The prohibition is meant to stigmatize the possession of nuclear weapons, which will lead to norms against the existence of them and an eventual elimination of all nuclear weapons. How do you see the nuclear ban treaty fitting into the disarmament process, and what will its effect be, if at all, on nuclear states to give up their weapons? Yeah, no, that's, that's obviously the, you know, the prime policy goal question. I think there's uh, a, a stark statement about this, one could say, and that is um, you phrased it as how do you see the treaty fitting into the disarmament process. Some would reverse it and say how would you see the disarmament process fitting into the treaty. Um, what we have here is an argument, at least at the initial level, of a difference of means, not a difference of goals. I think when Ms. Gottmuller spoke, she was speaking about look, um, particularly if you look generationally over the last 30 to 40 years, the fact that the United States and Russia have reduced from uh, double-digit thousands of systems down to about 1,500 very ready systems is significant. Some would say in the range of 80 to 85 percent reduction. And we've got to keep going there. Don't give us a, a, a benchmark now which is purest don't give us one in which you begin global condemnation with marches in the streets when we, we've got to get back to building this continued reduction, particularly in, 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 in the case of U.S. and Russia, in the enforcement of START 
uh, guidelines, the strategic arms reduction talks uh, that really need a reassessment next year in 2018. And so I, I, I'd like to see the treaty, although not everyone sees it this way, I'd like to see the treaty as first the validation by an overwhelming number of states in the world to pay attention to the need for getting rid of these weapons and be not surprised, but don't think it's cynical that the states which hold them say, no, that's not the way to go. Um, let that dialogue and debate begin. Secondly, given the momentum and opportunities that do exist, like holding ourselves more true to the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty and guaranteeing that the states that have do, in fact, continue reductions rather than enhancements. Special actions in the United States, given our moment, which is the nuclear posture review, the first one of the Trump administration, will be unveiled in the next couple of months. You know, Mr. Trump has his own kind of interesting end game versus where we are now. I remember at the press conference in New Jersey a couple of months ago, he said, you know, these things, I, I don't like these things. I believe that nobody in the world should have these. And then he took a breath and he said, but since we do and others do, we're going to have the best and most robust and we're going to spend till we get what we want. You know, that dichotomy now is called into question. If you really want no one else to have, how are you a leader in the creation of the process that's determined by the treaty? Get to zero and then once you're at zero, stay at zero becomes it, because it becomes a new norm. That dynamic is one in which U.S. leadership has already been shown in some aspects of disarmament, but now can and should be guided in others, especially with the Korea crisis and the dynamic of U.S.-Iran relationships in the balance. You know, in Korea, we're looking at a state with 10 to 14 weapons, but not yet the delivery systems. How do we react there? In Iran, quite frankly, my own position is I'm puzzled by a United States that is snatching defeat from the jaws of victory in an agreement in which you actually have verifiable evidence that a state has renounced and has no capacity to produce these. And some senators are arguing, but who knows what they're going to do in 10 years? You have 10 years to build a fabulous relationship with Iran across missile, terrorism, and other issues that you think separate you. Go and build it from this great springboard of the Iran agreement. I think when the people who forged the treaty at the UN saw that issue begin to unfold in the Trump administration, they understood the importance that it's not just, okay, you have no nuclear, but it's got to be an enforceable norm and a new code of the way we do international relations across all states in the system. I know that's a long answer, but I think this, this kind of concern you know, demands some attention to this. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much. So to wrap this up, I think it would be um, wrong for us to not discuss the current state of nuclear disarmament and the, really the lack of political will in the U.S. It's a reality that there, you don't hear um, people calling from this on the level that you see in many of the other countries around the world, particularly those that were leaders and supporters of the nuclear ban treaty. So what do you think it will take, Professor Lopez, to get nuclear states like the U.S., our own, to be more committed to the disarmament process? And what would a new world order look like without the threat of nuclear weapons? Well, this is an interesting question for me because uh, in the early 1980s, particularly before the first General Assembly session uh, on disarmament, 
I was trained in a, in a technique that uh, I've used over 30 years with different policy and military and other groups called envisioning a world without weapons. And the nature of this exercise is we uh, have very skilled professionals, about 40 of them in the room, and uh, we begin and put them in a scenario that's about 40 years hence from whenever we are and say the world is now secure, there's small pockets of violence, but each nation, region is flourishing economically, socially, politically, and there are no nuclear weapons. And now envision how and why that group got there and work your way backward for what might happen to have helped us get there. So it's a way of getting to break the present concern about political stalemate not by going from the present to the future, but in seeing a future in which certain things are facts. There are no nuclear weapons, but all states are secure, and work your way backward. Nine out of ten times when that workshop is run, the pivotal event is a nuclear war. So for those who think, you know, the Pope shouldn't be blasting anybody about nuclear deterrence or that we should go to zero because we're never going to go to zero, etc. You know, high-level policy and military people from across the spectrum agree that the definitive dynamic to get the world to non-nuclear security will probably be that the survivors of the nuclear exchange will realize the imperative of doing that. Now, if that happens nine out of ten times, how do we increase the chance of the one out of ten where we might invent the system without the terrible mishap. Think about this in terms of the current discussion about climate change and global warming. Many of us believe the realities and facts of global warming aren't going to go away. But there's no political will among a large faction in this country to act in public policy to exacerbate, mitigate the various factors that might help us cope with global warming. Well then 20 years from now, they're going to have no choice. We're trying to look to a nuclear world in which security specialists, people of goodwill who would like a better end goal, and some people driven by incredible moral fiber like Pope Francis say, let's go from just goodwill and semi-political will and appreciating a past where we did moderate reductions to the imperative that that nuclear war never happen at any level by being intentional about doing what we know we're going to have to do after tragedy. Let's do it now and create that system and be leaders of that system, even in a world of enemies in which they don't look like they want to participate yet. Awesome. Thank you very much, Professor Lopez, for being here today and sharing your expansive expertise and your um, truly remarkable opinions on this issue. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Students Talk Security. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.